I am about content, not creativity, all right? And so I made that myself, and I realized why I don't. So uh, if it's not up to your standards, you can always come up afterwards and look at it, all right? And so uh, appreciate the effort. Yes, thank you. But uh, that's not my skill level, but I thought, boy, listen to me talk for 50 minutes is pretty boring. So a few pictures might help uh, liven it up. So uh, we are on uh, question eight, uh, why Bethlehem? And uh, hopefully you have realized that each one of these questions uh, eventually at the end of it has two questions to study. And uh, if you're not familiar with Bethlehem, and like I said, I know it's not the the clearest, but Jerusalem is here. Bethlehem is just uh, south of that. And uh, on page 29, uh, we see here that David Jeremiah says, We imagine a silent night. But remember, the inns were full, and celebrants must have roamed the streets. We imagine an obscure town, yet Bethlehem already bore a surprisingly mixed legacy. The Bible tells us it was in Bethlehem, for example, that Jacob's beloved wife Rachel was buried. Tragically, she died in childbirth as Joseph's beloved brother Benjamin came into the world. Around another bend of history's trail lies Ruth, whose story is short but moving. Two widows, Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, left foreign Moab for a small town where Naomi and her husband had lived, the town of Bethlehem. But if you turn over on page 30, the second uh, page in this, it says, Little Bethlehem also provided ancient Israel its most enduring hero. The prophet Samuel had come to town in search of a future king, just as other wise men would do hundreds of years ago. The book of 1 Samuel records how the prophet came to the house of Jesse and carefully sized up the young men of the household, one by one. One commentator I read said that Bethlehem would have been a buzz with all of the family that was coming back to register. People would have been excited, they would have been happy, Another commentator says they would have not been happy because the reason they had to register was to do what? Pay taxes. taxes. And I like to think that's probably more fitting. If you had to tell me, and as you've seen in the state of Illinois, we want you to come and register your stuff. As the state is trying to get you to do with your firearms right now, come and register them. That makes you happy, doesn't it? You just wake up thinking, I want to do that. And so I'm sure the people at Bethlehem, while they were happy to see their crazy aunt or their uncle they hadn't seen in a while or multiple generations down the line, they were probably not in the best of spirits to be showing up to pay taxes to a government that they hated, to King Herod, who they hated. And so it's just a really interesting thing because when we think of Bethlehem and we think of the birth of Christ, we think of this beautiful peaceful, elegant manger, right? That all is well. And, and you know what? The city was probably a mess. We, you can read in here and uh, see that with all of the crowds, they would have not had enough inns or rooms. And so they would have had makeshift tents. And uh, if you know anything about large crowds, while it brings good people, it also brings out the worst of people. One commentator said this would have been the perfect setting for pickpockets, 
thieves, those who were taking advantage of people. And so uh, if you were paying uh, $2 for an egg before and everybody's in town, guess what happens? It's kind of like the toilet paper crisis of 2020, right? Yeah, the toilet paper, everything was outrageous. Uh, if you're following the news right now, there's a, a famous country or some kind of singer. She's a heathen. And uh, they, so it doesn't matter. But their tickets went on sale. And if you saw anything about the ticket place, it broke because it was so many people wanted it. And, and uh, someone just sent me something. My wife sent me something that said, hey, we can get $1,200 tickets to see your favorite uh, artist uh, teasing me. And I'm like, I ain't paying $1,200 to see anybody. But it's just the stupidity of there isn't any. People want their hands on it. And so that is the setting of Bethlehem. But yet... In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, You, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. This was a special city. If you read the paragraph above of that, think about King David. King David, when at the end of his reign and uh, the kingdom began to shrink... It says here that the Philistines had put a garrison in Bethlehem. And David wanted a drink of water from that well so bad that soldiers broke through to steal some for him because he wanted that. And so while we look at Bethlehem, we can see here two things on page 31. The meeting of the town. The first is the bread of life. And we know that Jesus eventually came saying that He was the... Bread of life. The bread of life. In John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. We know another name means fruitfulness. And so Jesus talked about, right, that we are to bear much fruit. And so the name is significant. The history is significant. And so this little town, we see that God had chosen to reach down and bless humanity. Humanity, excuse me. And so if you've got your book there, those last two questions I hope you'll look at. Is there a special location associated with your family history? Have you visited there recently? According to this chapter, what other important things happened in Bethlehem? And so God predicted this would be the town and Jesus shows up in this town. The next question we see is, why was there no room at the inn? And uh, if you want to flip over there on page 34, we've talked about this just a little bit there when I quoted about uh, the pickpockets and the travelers and all of those things. But there on page 34, it's the first, second, third, fourth paragraph, God's greatest gift. If somebody would read that paragraph, I would greatly appreciate it. No, that's fine. I want to show you just for a second here. These are actual ruins of ancient Bethlehem. And so uh, we've looked that it was a town probably of under 2,000 people. 
But yet on this weekend or on this time of registration, uh, the numbers could have been uh, at least five times that many, if not more. Uh, we see here, uh, these are some of the inns uh, and mangers in Bethlehem and around there this day that have been traced back to the time of Jesus. And so, if you've ever heard, if He was born in a cave or He was born in a manger, etc., we just don't know for sure. And that takes us to the next question there on number 10, is why the stable? This here is another picture of another cave or stable that would have been used uh, because Bethlehem was built that way, uh, into a rocky hill, a rocky uh, side. And uh, even to this day, uh, where church history believes that the birth of Jesus was, there is a church called the Church of the Nativity. And uh, even as early as 100 and about 30 A.D., uh, they viewed that as where Jesus was born. And this is called the Door of Humility. And it's very interesting because in order to get into the birthplace of Jesus, everyone has to go through this very small door. Uh, you can't go in through in a big elaborate door. Some people believe it was built like that. So when the Muslims invaded in the 1000 uh, AD, that they couldn't get their horses in there. They would have to get off their horses and they could fight one-on-one. Other people view it as that we all have to come the same way. There is no rich, no poor. All of us come through the way. And we know that Jesus talks about Himself being the way, the truth, and the life. And so this is the inside of the church that is built over the uh, birthplace of the Lord. According to history, you can see that it is a very elaborate church. It's one of the oldest uh, religious structures in the world. And uh, this is the hole that takes you to the cave where they believe Jesus would have been uh, born. And all that other stuff is just nonsense, but I'm not going to get into that. And so if you went to Israel today, which I hope at some point, We can take a church trip to Israel. Someone much smarter than me will have to lead it. But you can go there. And so you can see where scholars believe Jesus was born. And so, but why the stable? That first paragraph there on page 37 says, We cannot be certain whether the birthplace of Christ was a wooden shed or an ancient cave. The word stable is not found in the nativity narrative. It's natural to assume such because Luke tells us the shepherds were to seek the child lying in the manger, which was a feeding trough for animals. That trough is actually mentioned twice, once by Luke and once in the words of the angel who appeared to the shepherd. First century Roman reports mention a cave that was believed to be the birthplace of Jesus. And certainly animals were often sheltered in caves. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to imagine that at the very shelter David had rested with his sheep many years earlier, he might have composed the shepherd psalm on the very spot where the good shepherd entered this world. On another occasion, he might have rested here while he received the inspiration to write Psalm 22, which so vividly describes the pain of the crucifixion. But don't miss the next sentence. All of this is simply speculation. But think of the same hometown that David would have grown up, the same caves, the same uh, pasture that he would have had his animals. We see hundreds of years later, Jesus is being born into. 
On page 38, if somebody would read that second paragraph, I would greatly appreciate it. Many of us. And I think it's very interesting when we think about the stable and we, we romanticize it, right? But yet it would have been nasty. It would have been a place that almost any husband would not have wanted your wife to give birth. Uh, I have been in... Yes, sir. Uh, I was raised in a farm up in all kinds of stables. And then when I was in college, I was around all kinds of people. I can tell you the truth. <laughs> I'd rather be in the stable with the horses and cows and hogs. <laughs> a lot of people... You might not be that if Kathy was giving birth to Justin, though. I understand. You shouldn't talk about your church family like that. But. <laughs> so, so since he pulled the top top off of that, yeah. one thing that we also have a misconcept of is the inn. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a holiday and express no. at that day. And the, the word for inn is Cataluma, I believe. And it's a guest it's a guest room. So it would be maybe a relative of theirs mm-hmm. that would have an extra room where they would stay, yeah. but they, were, they ran out of relatives. Yeah. Yeah, and many people would have made makeshift uh, sightings, those people that weren't very above board, uh, because most families you would let them stay with you. But when all of your family comes to town, you can't let them all stay with you. And so Dave is correct. So April, April 8, 2024 is when the next big eclipse is going to mm-hmm. come, and Hamilton County is going to experience this. Yeah. Because everybody's going to want to be here. Yeah. We're right, on, we're right on the maximum... Yeah. Well, I think Randy's got some friends from Arizona that are coming up here just to watch the eclipse. So. Well, I, I have 20 foot squares for rent. The other thing I was going to pray out about this, according to Jewish law, aren't there a lot of restrictions on a woman having a child, people seeing it? Well, a lot of it's just the uncleanliness of the certain animals. I mean, this would have been an unclean situation from even a Jewish Old Testament uh, purification situation, let alone the, the actual health issues of giving birth in that mess. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, it was very, very important. Huh? No, probably not. But I think this is very important because where the Prince of Peace is born, it's not a very peaceful place. And if you study church history, this very site of where they believe Jesus was born, and you can read it in here, and I hope that you will, became the site to tons of bloody warfare. Because when the Roman Empire decided to try to stamp out early Christianity, they kept trying to figure out why these people were worshiping at this cave or this location. And so there on page 39, you can see it. Hadron actually built a pagan temple on the actual spot 
to keep Christians from worshiping there. Now we know that Constantine's mother, when he got saved, tore it down or or refurbished it and made it into a Christian church. But if you go back throughout this, when the Persians and the Turks and, and all of these years they would come in, they would try to take this church. Then when the Crusaders came back in, it was a constant state of bloodshed because it held such significance to the Christian faith. And so what we see is the place doesn't matter. The setting, while it is special, isn't what matters. And so as Christians, we never must become people who are so focused on tradition and history and artifacts and all this stuff that can become idols and realize the child in the manger is the focus. He is the Prince of Peace. The spot's not, and I'm, like I said, I want to go to Israel. I want to go on a tour. I want to see all of this. But none of that in the grand scheme of things, other than proving the Bible is true, helps me get to heaven. None of it makes me more spiritual or less. And so I just really want you to think about this holiday season because now I'm going to say this and it's going to get me in trouble and I'm not going to stop. But you all are parts of families. And some of your families are like this. We have to meet on Christmas Day. We have to meet on Christmas Eve. We have to miss on, meet on Thanksgiving. It doesn't matter who can't be here. Our family always meets here. You don't like it? Don't come. Right? That's how some family are. I'm not saying that's wrong, all right? But at our, just saying it's not best, but... But in our house, my mom has always said, I don't care when we have Christmas, when we have Thanksgiving, we'll move it two days forward, two days back. We'll, we'll meet on New Year's Day as long as what? Everybody can be there. And when we think about spiritual things, it is so important to know why we believe what we believe and to know the things about what we do. And right now we're, we're going through a building project and we might be going through more. And it's important but it's just a building. It can't become sacred. It can't become if we don't have this, right? It's all about the fact that we do all of this to do what? Glorify God and reach people. And so as a church, we must always return to that, that the nativity is important, the stable is important, all that went on is important, but don't miss the real focus. That's the baby. That's Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Mm-hmm. It still would be a slum. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Streets of gold and foundations of jasper and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, question eleven is we're going to just jump right through this. You say, well, this is not very in depth. Yeah, because it's called a personal devotion. And uh, why call him Jesus? There on page forty-two. Uh, I think sometimes we forget this, but Jesus is just the Greek equivalent of Joshua, which means God saves. It recalled the great leader of Israel who succeeded Moses, leading the Israelites into the promised land. For Hebrew families, giving a son that name was paying homage to a national hero, much like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And so I tried to do a little bit of study about this, and it's very true. It would have been a very common name to give a young Jewish boy. But about 40 years, 
30 to 40 years after Jesus' birth, just a few years after His death, in Jewish history, the name's gone. The Jews didn't want to name their kid after the heretic. And Christians wouldn't name their kid that because why? It was reverent. Except in Mexico. Except in Mexico. And that's a whole other mess, right? But if you look in Jewish history, it just stops. And it stops because of the significance of that. And as I studied about that, I began to pray about that, right? Because the Bible really talks about He either becomes your Savior or your stumbling block. And to the families who wouldn't use His name out of reverence, it's because they love Him. They care about Him. They know Him. But to those people who rejected Jesus, rejected the Christian faith, it becomes something detestable. It became a stumbling block, even the name of Jesus. But what does the Bible tell us? Um, uh, Literally, it tells us that His name is above all names. And uh, in Philippians chapter 2, on page 46, if someone wants to read verses 9 through 11 there, it's on that little book. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 on page 46. Amen. Amen. And so we see that. But if you look back on page 42, when Jesus uh, was being born, when, he, when Joseph found out that she was pregnant, listen to what um, in Matthew chapter 1. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What Mary and Joseph see as this difficult situation, it's not one that you choose on your own. God the Father already knew the purpose and plan that He was going to have. And many times in our walk with the Lord, we see the beginning, but we don't see the end. And in Philippians 2, we see that God gave him that name, gave that child to them for the sole purpose of elevating him. That it wasn't an accident, it wasn't a mistake. And so as we worship Him and we honor Him, I hope that you can say that tonight. I hope that you can honestly say that you have a relationship with Jesus, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life. You say, Jake, this is a Wednesday night. Everybody here is saved. I've been in church long enough to know that you don't get this many people together without somebody not being saved. They might think they are, but I'm telling you, And we need to always remind people that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And tonight, if you're not 100% sure that you've trusted Him as the Lord and Savior of your life, please don't leave here without talking to someone. You say, well, Jake, I've been in this church my whole life. I'd much rather you be in heaven for your eternity than worry about being here your whole life. And so please, when you think about that, when you read that verse, know that the Father sent Him to save sinners. And that name is the name above every name. Questions, thoughts? Like I said, I know I'm going quick, but it's just an overview. So Gabriel went to both Mary and Joseph and told them the name of Jesus, but it was probably Yeshua. Yeah, it would have been... Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> wow. I just, you know, I think you're going to recognize it either way. I do too, yeah. <laughs> just curious. I mean, you know, if you think about it, I've got yeah. a sister that if you call her the wrong name, it just works. <laughs> yeah. <I do. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, all I know is I'll be glad I know whatever heaven, whatever language heaven is God. That's what I'll be speaking. Yeah. You don't think English will be the preferred language in heaven? Don't dial one for English. <laughs> like that old song said, if there's a telephone in heaven, put my mom on the line, you know. Don't dial one for English, two for... Yeah. So why was Jesus born of a virgin? And I want to really encourage you to really spend a lot of time in this one because there is a lot of very important things in this chapter, even a little bit more than some of them, about the nature of who God is, the nature of who Jesus is. And there on page 48, uh, if somebody would read that second paragraph, the answer centers. I would greatly appreciate it. The answer centered on the identity and mission of Jesus Christ, even though Jesus lived among us as a fully human individual, he was also fully divine, a pre-existing, eternal person. Human parents are temporal and infinite, and they can pass on only as limited characters, limited, limiting characteristics. He existed in the beginning with, with God, John 1, 2. He, was always, he always existed and always will. Therefore, as Oswald Chamber has pointed out, Jesus was born into this world, not from it. He is in no way a product of the natural earth or the union of human father and mother. Instead, he is the eternal person of the Lord himself and the infinite one who created the universe, taking on the limited form of human beings. Amen. So, what separates Christianity from the teachings of the Jehovah Witness, from the teaching of the Church of Mormon, the teaching of some of these other organizations that claim to be Christian. And if you have a background in that, I am in no way trying to upset you tonight, but this is where they get it wrong, on the divinity of Jesus, that He is God. He's not the Father's physical Son, and He was created. He has always been God. He has always existed. He was not Satan's brother. And you say, but Jake, those, those churches, they, they think like we do. They vote like we do. They, they, they have so many qualities that we share. But if you miss the divinity of Jesus, and you miss that He is fully God and fully man, you are not believing the Jesus of the Bible. And if you don't believe the Jesus of the Scriptures, you believe in a false Jesus. And a false Jesus cannot get you to heaven. And so while we are not critical of other people to be mean, when it comes to the, of who Jesus is, there is no compromise. We cannot work or team up with or partner with someone who doesn't get it right about Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote most of his New Testament books against that. Because some people would have said, well, Jesus was too perfect to be sinful, so He couldn't have died on the cross. And other heresies would have said, no, He had to be all man because He couldn't have... Been. And it was always this fight back and forth. 
And so you have to believe in a virgin birth because He could not be just man and He could not be just God. And so He had a the Spirit of God, and you can look at that uh, in the next page about the key word in the passage is overshadow. The idea in the original language is that the great cloud um, envelops someone. Uh, the people of Israel had always used that metaphor to understand God's mysterious and undeniable presence. And so He was not created like every other human being in human history. And we look at that and we really have to step back and say, if you do not believe the miracles of the Bible, you cannot believe in the God of the Bible. And I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight here in this group, but friends, that is why we must be a people that will not compromise that the Bible is God's Word from Genesis 1 to the very last verse in Revelation. Because if the virgin birth is not true, or the creation account is not true, or the parting of the Red Sea is not true, if the second coming isn't true because we haven't seen it and we can't understand it, then how is the resurrection true? If one miracle in Scripture is not true, then none of it is true. And if one miracle is true, then all of them are true. And so when we think about this Christmas season, we have to get back to the belief that we serve a God of unimaginable power. That we serve a God who is in the miracle working business. And I know as Baptists, that makes us a little uncomfortable. All right, because we've all seen the Pentecostal movement hijack miracles, hijack the power and majesty of God. And so we come to church and we're like, boy, I better be stoic and I better be silent and I better be stiff and I better be frozen. And, uh, and that's not what we are and that's not who we worship. We worship a God who can raise the dead, can heal the sick, give sight to the blind, who can, can cast out demons. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so while God works in His own timing, in His own way, when we read the Christmas story, it gives me hope. Because why? I have lost family and friends that are in my family. Now, I know you don't because you're all wonderful spiritual people, but my family is full of people that don't know Jesus. All right? But I believe He can still do a miracle. I believe He can convict them. I believe He can control them. I can believe He can show Himself to them. And they can experience a new birth, a supernatural birth, a miraculous birth. Why? because He is in the miraculous birth business. And you have to believe that. And so the Christmas story, the Christmas facts are encouraging to each and every one of us. But there in Luke chapter 1 on page 49, we see that Mary asked the question, how can this happen? I think that's a very valid question for someone to ask. And it literally says, The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby will be born holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Now, I know when, you, when our baby children are born, uh, I guess it's just babies in general, right? Not just baby children, but uh, if they're born to you, they're children, so just babies, all right? Uh, when you look at them for that first time, or grandparents, you're just like, oh, they're perfect in every way. 
Not only did he just come out puking, pooping, peeing, every other nasty thing the human body does, and you're like, but they're perfect in every way. Heads look like they've been sucked out of a tube, you know. I mean, just, just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, right? They're perfect in every way. But friends, that child is born with a sin nature. A corruption that happens that I believe comes through the Father. But Jesus didn't have that. And so when the writer says that He was holy, that's what He was. You see, we think of Him about being perfect when He was an adult and when He went to the cross, but He had been perfect forever. He was perfect in glory. He was perfect in the manger. He was perfect as a young boy growing up. He was holy in every single way. Questions? Thoughts? So, uh, in the New Testament, we're told that, that God planned to save us before He even had created, before the foundations of the world were laid. But also in Genesis 3, when after Adam and Eve sinned, God makes the promise mm-hmm. of the Savior. And I think already back then, He had it in His mind. Oh yeah. Well, I think it's, it's the seed of, you know this is the only place where the seed of the woman is going to. Be. Yeah. So everything else is it's, it's the male, it's the seed of Abraham. Yeah. Isaac and Jacob. Absolutely, absolutely. I always like Adrian Rogers' statement. Does it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, it's all His. It's all His plans and purposes. And so uh, Isaiah 7 verse 14 there on page 51, the Lord Himself will give you the sign, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I like that third paragraph on page 51. It says, finally, the virgin birth is a miracle. Miracles are God's way of commanding our attention. They help people understand a truth that they don't see otherwise. Jesus said about His miracles, they prove that the Father sent me. And so I just really want to encourage you to believe the miracles of Scripture. Question 12, or 13, excuse me, is why did Jesus come as a baby? Why did Jesus come... As a baby. There on page 53, that can you imagine, if somebody would like to read that paragraph, I would greatly appreciate it. Can you imagine how intently Joseph and Mary must have studied the child who came to them from Bethlehem? His coming had been foretold not by physicians but by angels. If those angels were right, and how could they not be? Here in the starlight was the Messiah who had been the subject of poems, songs, and dreams for thousands of years. Messiah, perhaps the couple stammered when they tried to speak to him word aloud. It was just so hard to imagine such a magnificent personification when they looked at the sleeping infant. On page 54 at the bottom, it talks about why the virgin birth was such a beautiful picture of divinity but truly, a little baby is, is probably the best depiction of humanity that we can see. Right? A baby cannot care for themselves. Uh, a baby cannot survive without someone else. A baby is totally and completely dependent on someone else. 
Uh, there's an old song that the cathedrals used to sing. It's one of my favorites. And if you know anything about me, all the old ones are my favorites. And uh, uh, Monty, you're in here. Maybe you could sing this for me sometimes. It was, I thirst. And I don't know if you've heard that or not, but uh, it talks about how uh, the one who made the oceans uh, said, I thirst. The one who made the rivers said, I thirst. And and we think about all that God has done. And the Bible says that Jesus created everything. It was created by Him and for Him and through Him. But yet in this picture we see a baby. Just like any other baby from a physical standpoint. He didn't come out talking and riding a bike. He came out just like a baby. And we see the humility. We see the humanity of that. I think... God does that for us to wrap our head around the simple fact that while He was divine, He was human. And every, the Bible says, temptation and struggle and weakness that we face, He can sympathize with us. And on page 55, it talks about we see Him as a child in the manger. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, "...in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people." We see him as a young man, uh, the carpenter's son, and his uh, brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, all his sisters lived among us, is what Matthew 13 talks about. We know we see him as a child in the temple. And so we see him grow up. We see the humanity even as we see the divine nature. And as Christians, how can God be fully man and fully God? I can't answer that for you. I, I don't know. It is a miracle. And so we don't serve just a man. We serve God in the flesh. And so when we think about Him on the cross, He took our punishment as the man, as the sacrifice, but yet He also rose from the grave through His divine power. And so as believers, we cannot get away from that simple truth that He was fully God and fully man. And uh, we don't have time to really go into depth on much more about the, the shepherds and the angels and, and the wise men, and, and you can go through all that on your own time. But there is one I want to finish with as we finish up our time, and that's question 18. Question 18 about Herod. And um, what you see here is modern-day... Um, Herod's Fortress. You can see, well, I know what you're saying. It's not very good quality. You can come look at it later. All right. It's up on a dome. Herod was a man that when the Roman Empire fell into disarray, uh, when Caesar was murdered, that there were warring factions. And Mark Anthony won and appointed him to rule over this rowdy bunch of people in this area. And King Herod won a great victory during this civil war. And so because of that, he builds this great big palace, fortress, up on this hill. And what you see is from that day and time what that would have looked like. It had four giant pillars. It was built in an odd shape. Uh, down here it had lush gardens and, and all of these things that would have displayed what a king looked like. And if you've ever studied anything about Rome and all of the uh, aqued aqueducts and all of the architecture, he would have brought that to Israel. And so this man who is sitting in his palace just a few miles, if you 
remember our first map, which is probably the most unclear. The Herodian right over here, probably somewhere between five to eight miles from the birth of Jesus sits this man who calls himself king, who thinks he has all power, who thinks he has all authority. But yet, just a few miles down the road, the real king is being born. If you ever study, and thankfully uh, David Jeremiah does here, it talks a little bit about Herod. And it talked about how when he built the temple, it was because he was trying to earn the love and favor of the Jewish people. But what we know about Herod was he was a wicked, wicked man. He had blood on his hands. He had murdered his own family members. He had, uh, there on page 76, he had been doing so for years. There was already blood on his hands, the blood of his own wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, three of his sons, and 46 priests, along with untold others. And this is the man that they show up and says, can you point us to the king of the Jews? We know through history that he would have been very late in his life. We know from certain sources that he was bitter. He was struggling with a physical illness. Uh, Most historians believe that Herod had tried to take his own life, but had failed. He struggled with paranoia because the Jews were always threatening to revolt. And here is this man that is in control of everything. When some men show up and said, can you point us? We've seen the star. Now I say that today because I want to finish with this because how true is that about people? We sit in our fancy homes, our fancy cars, we've got our big jobs and we think we have everything this life has to offer. But so many people are broken and miserable. They are living lives for the things of this world and there is no joy. There's a reason that anxiety is at an all-time high. Depression discouragement. You look at every mental illness, every struggle emotionally, and for a nation that has everything we could ever want, it's all at record highs. And what we see in our country is everybody is terrified to lose what they've accumulated. I'm guilty of it. I look at the stock market every day. Every day I look just to make sure that someday in 40 years from now, my wife will have enough to live on after I'm gone. I look every day. I like to think it's not because of greed, but just because you ought to be wise. But how many people do you remember in 08 when everything fell apart? When people lost their homes and their all the stuff that they'd accumulated through credit card debt and, and we realized that everybody was living above their means, right? And when the rug was pulled out, everything fell apart. And I just think about how many people like King Herod think they have everything and are trying to accumulate everything. Think about this, building the temple, trying to earn the love of other people. I, um, <laughs> I taught this in the nightly devotion last night, and I'll teach it again, and, and, and it just is what it is. We are looking at a culture, as a father of six daughters, the idea of my children dating keeps me up at night. Just going to be honest with you. That and paying for weddings, those keep me up at night. But what keeps me up more is the fact that our society has taught, young ladies especially, that they find their worth in what some idiot hairy leg thinks about them. And it's all about looks, it's all about how they dress, and 
And, uh, you know, I remember being a teenager and uh, in seventh grade, and everybody looked like little boys, all right, in seventh grade. And right now my daughter's got friends that are wearing makeup and all this other stuff, and they look like they're way too old. And the world has told them that's where you get your value from. And so we have lost these principles of purity and chastity and, and saving yourself for marriage and all of this that God says is true beauty. Why? Because you need someone to love you. You need someone to pay attention to you. And so we're watching teenage uh, issues that no teenager should have to face. There was a time five years ago, the class that graduated last year, that within an eight-week period, I was in nine homes of church people whose junior high kids had either sent pictures of themselves or received inappropriate pictures of someone else to those teenage kids. And it broke my heart because that's what love is in our society. We have to earn it. We have to accumulate it. And King Herod literally sit six miles away from the answer to the world's problems. He literally had someone come and tell him, there's a real king being born. And he chose to reject it. We know that he chose to reject it so much that he had all of the little baby boys murdered. You see, he didn't just reject it, he hated it. And friends, tonight I want you to know that you are going to come into contact with so many people who are in the same position as Herod. They have nothing of value, but yet they think they have everything. I have literally read this chapter about King Herod probably 20 times, over and over again, just because of the sadness and, the, and just the heartbreak that comes from it. On page 77, and I'm going to close. The th second paragraph says, Herod tried to manipulate the wise man to lead him to the child. When that failed, he decided to simply kill all the infant males, two years old and under. To be sure, he wiped the slate clean of any fu future competition. That plot, too, was thwarted. Herod didn't reckon upon the possibility that God, who fills thrones and topples them, might even then be working his own purposes. Herod died soon after. You can visit this exact same place, impressive ruins of the Herodium, and see the dust of his legacy. As for the wise men, they went home by another way. And the little king in the manger, he rules even today. Wise, good, and beloved by billions of subjects. You can visit his palace too. It is alive and growing more beautiful each day as children come by the thousands and ten thousands to join His eternal kingdom of life and light. And so tonight I just really hope that you will think about your own life and the things that you're pursuing and the things that have got your attention and your heart and your love and to make sure they're Jesus. And for those people that you're going to come in contact with at family gatherings, those mean people you're going to see at the store when they're trying to buy all their Christmas stuff. And I made the mistake of trying to go in and buy a white shirt at Kohl's the other day, all right? And uh, apparently Kohl's doesn't make shirts big enough for me anymore, and they don't carry them in the store. And so I was kind of grouchy anyway, all right? And I was like, you know what I need? I need one of those good candy bars from the front. 
because I can't fit into any of the shirts that are here. I need a candy bar to make me feel better. And when I got up to the front, if you've ever been to Kohl's this time of the year, the line was all the registers down the front at Mount Vernon and turned down around the kids section and was going down those clothes. And I thought, I don't need a candy bar, but I want one. And I thought, look, huh? I thought, I looked at all these dumb people buying all this stuff, right? Uh-huh. Coles cash. They had to get their Coles cash, you know. Huh? I don't know, but I'm going to try. Just like the triple cheeseburgers from Culver's. But I say all that because, right, we are living in a world that it's all about the here and the now and the accumulating. And that line was full of people that no matter what they buy, no matter what they give, it'll never bring real happiness. It'll never bring real joy. And they will enter this Christmas season and leave this Christmas season with the same hole that they had before. And so this Christmas season, think about that, that those people need the gospel. Take one of these books, give it to them, tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. Questions, uh, concerns, thoughts? Well, that says to me about Herod that one of the saddest things is that he believed. Otherwise, his actions say he believed, but he wouldn't submit. Mm -hmm. Had he submitted, he would be with Jesus, Mm -hmm. and he's not. Yeah. I think that happens all over today. People believe, but they won't submit. Amen. Yeah. Everybody wants to be saved, but they don't want him to be Lord. And uh, you're exactly right. I think the other thing with Herod, too, is you, know, you touched on at the beginning that he was set up as king by Mark Anthony. Mm-hmm. He was just a puppet king anyways. Yep. I mean, God allowed him to be king, mm-hmm. but God's the one that built, you know, like we, at the end of the reading, God Absolutely. builds a kingdom and takes him down. Absolutely. He was just a puppet. Quirinius was over mm-hmm. there. Yeah. You know, there was a whole string of Romans. Absolutely. could have just took him out you mm-hmm. know, at their will. Yeah. Well, that's why most. Yeah, well, that's why most scholars think he was so paranoid because all it took was one civil war in the capital, and he would no longer be in favor. And so that's why they believe he built that uh, that castle and that fortress so big was so that if Rome ever turned on him, he would have a place to retreat to. And so what meant to be a celebration of his victory ended up becoming his own prison. And how true is that in today's world, right? Everything that people think they need, they want to accumulate, becomes their prison, right? I need that new house. I need that new car. I need all of these other things. And then the debt that, that comes from that begins to what? Cripple their life, right? This relationship that I think I need or this relationship I think will make my life better end up being the prison that we find ourselves in. Well, and so we're talking about your girls mm-hmm. and your legacy and your very legs. Herod's family, if you follow it down, is a train wreck. Yeah. You know, and it, it goes into the crucifixion story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Other questions, thoughts? All right. Like I said, I hope you're reading this every day. If you didn't get a book, we have them back there for you. They're free. And uh, just really diving into this is a book full of great stuff that we just don't have time to cover in three weeks. And so that's my fault for not thinking. Hey, it might take longer than three weeks.